Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became as dead men. And the angel of the Lord said unto the women, Fear not, for I know you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. You may be seated. We've got a new policy here. No one who is taller than I am can do the scripture anymore. <laughs> Thank you for your patience this morning. Bless your hearts. I know that uh, you may or may not have been in the mood to worship when you got in here this morning, but uh, you will be glad you came. And thank you for your patience as you leave. Uh, it's wonderful to make room so, for so much of God's family. I'm going to be reading out of uh, another uh, version of uh, the story out of the Gospel of John. So if you want to turn, if you brought your scriptures with you, to the 20th chapter. While you're turning to that 20th chapter, let me say to you that Christmas and Easter time um, really are times more to celebrate more in music and Splendor than in developing a, uh, a content-oriented message, and, and I understand that. And so I'm just going to uh, preach for a little while this morning, and then we're going to hear. We're going to be blessed with the choir. This is this is a great blessing. Uh, I thought for a while about sque- trying to squeeze an entire sermon into a, a, a short period of time, but came up with a sermonette, and sermonettes are for Christianettes. And we are not trying to build Christianettes here. And so what I would rather do for you is begin a theme this morning that I will complete next week. I want to introduce to you a concept this morning that I will explain more of next week. I will begin reading to you. Uh, Mary is in the garden. She has been asked questions by the angels. She has just completed her answers to the angels. And it says in verse 14, When she had said this, she turned around... And beheld Jesus standing there. Now, in Greek, that verb is a perfect participle, standing, which means he had been there for a while. It's not that she turns around and as soon as she turns around, he appears. No, you've been in a room, have you not, and sensed the presence of someone beside you and you've turned around. And that's exactly what happened at this moment. Did not know that it was Jesus, the Bible says. Um, there's a couple of couple of theories on this. First of all, how could she miss him? You know, how could she she loved this man more than anybody in the world, and she had spent so much time. How could she not know it was Jesus? Well, some people say it was because she was crying so hard. She missed him so much, and she couldn't see through the tears, and it was blurry, and so on and so forth. That's that's plausible. Uh, some people say that it was early morning, remember, and it was so dark that the dawn had not yet broken, and so he was standing in the shadows, and she just didn't see who he really was. That's plausible also. Some people say that Jesus was like the angels. He was so dressed in the, the glory of the raiment that she was blinded by the glory. Not 
very plausible because she never would have mistaken him for the gardener. And, you know, unless, unless gardeners wore different garb back then than they do now. Probably not that one. But let me tell you why I think it is in just a moment. She did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, why would Jesus ask her this question? Because he didn't know the answer? No. It's another one of God's questions, isn't it? He asked, he asked not for him, but for the person whom he's asking. God did this in the garden. Walked along, along and, and Adam had sinned, and, and he and Eve were behind the bush, and God says, Adam, where are you? Yeah, like he didn't know where Adam was. You know, gosh, Adam, where are you? You know, that was not a question to be answered in geography, but in biography. What, where are you now, Adam? Now that you sinned, where are you? Adam was to ask himself that question. This is the same type of question. Whom are you seeking? You know, Jesus knows perfectly well who she's seeking. He wants her to begin not to answer that question quite so fast. Adam should not have said, behind the bush, you know. She doesn't need to say, Jesus, see. She needs to know that there is a change going on here and she is going to be recognizing a different thing for her life than she thought she was looking for. Now come on with me some more. It says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Now this is important too. There's a sense, this is a present imperative verb tense, which, which, which denotes a continuous or repeated action. Some of you have King James and it says, touch me not. That doesn't give you the true sense of this one. Obviously, Mary almost tackled him when she saw him. Just started grabbing on to him. He said, stop clinging to me. In other words, he was forbidding a continuing action that she was doing. Translated, this is, don't continue to cling to me in the form that I now am. Look at what it says next. It says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, this is a perfect indicative. And it would say to us, it says... There's going to be, it's not, I'm jumping from here to heaven, okay? It's not one act, it's a transformation. There is a change going on here. And you can't hold on to me as I used to be to you. Because if you try to hold on to that, I can never be as intimate with you as I promised I would be someday. The uh, scriptures all have indigenous accounts about the mysterious understanding of who Jesus was immediately after he was resurrected. People didn't, didn't recognize him. It was because, Mark says in 1612, it says he came in a different form. The, the Greek uh, word is morphe, and we get the word metamorphosis from it. There was a change going on in his form. He was going to be a changed person, and they would never again know him as he was. Okay, now, um, just a couple more lines. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. A couple of things that I want 
you to notice. First of all, one of the reasons Mary did not recognize Jesus was not only that he was changing form, but she was looking for a dead Jesus. And when you look for a dead Jesus, you can't see a live Jesus because you don't expect to find one. Our expectations are so concrete, so focused, that when something is entirely out of our expectation, that we do not recognize it even though it's real. It was important uh, that she come to the place where she changed her opinion about what Jesus would be. There's a painting in South America in one of the churches, and it's a curious thing. It's, it's, uh, it, was, it was painted probably in about 1890 from the, from the garb of the people. The, the, the painting is called The Autopsy. And there is a crew of surgeons dressed in the suits of the day performing an autopsy on a crucifix, on a man on the cross, on Jesus. The autopsy. What it is trying to say is that most people believe Jesus was a historical figure. And they confine him in their mentality to being someone who once lived. And these surgeons are trying to analyze and investigate this dead Jesus so that they can try and figure out what made him tick. Can I say to you that most Christians are like that today? They go through the analysis of who Jesus used to be in hopes that they'll find out what Christianity is all about. It's not about who Jesus used to be. It's about who Jesus is right now. Now, I don't want to spend my time talking to you about eternal life. Frankly, I hear Easter messages on trying to surprise people, saying, oh, there's eternal life, like it was some big shock to people. People believe in eternal life. There's only 16% of the population of these, this country that doesn't believe in eternal life. And I guarantee you that they wouldn't stand in line to get in a church on Sunday morning. So I'm not talking to an audience that does not believe in eternal life. Eternal life is quite evident to everybody who has examined the fabric of the universe, if only in pure scientific terms. Werner von Braun, the great German scientist that meant so much in developing our space program, explains his belief in life after death from an essentially scientific aspect. He says this, Science has never seen anything that disappeared without a trace. Nature knows nothing of extinction. It knows only of transformation. That is, nothing is ever lost according to the law of conservation of, of matter. It's only transformed into something different. And he says this, if God applies that principle to the most minute and insignificant parts of the universe... Will he not also apply that principle to the masterpiece of his creation, the human soul? And of course the answer is yes. So I don't want to preach to you today about being surprised that we can live forever. We can live forever and that life is in Jesus Christ. And if you will invite him into your heart, that will be yours. If you will live with him, you live with him forever. We'll give you a chance to do that later. I want to talk to you about a resurrection principle that you can have for your life. I want to introduce it just right now. It is important to note that even though you may believe in the resurrection, 
you may not know how to appropriate that resurrection for your life. That is, you may not be able to have new life extended from your life because you've never known how to do it. Jesus, very plainly in this scripture, gives us the wherewithal to do that. Look at this. He says, Stop clinging to me. Let me plant this in your mind. The resurrection principle of relationships is this. It is not the longevity only that counts in relationships. It is the capacity to change the form of the relationship as you go along that resurrects the life in a relationship. Let me say it again. It is the capacity to change the form of the relationship as you go along that institutes the perpetual life in that relationship. Jesus was saying to her, you can't love me like you used to. You've got to love me like I am now. It is so important. It is important to note that if we will change as people change, we will not have to give up relationships. I have people who come into me and say, that's not the man I married. I'm quitting. That's not the man I married. Of course that's not the man you're mar- you married. I have people come in and say, look, I've changed. I'm not that st- starry 16-year-old kid that was head over heels in love. I'm not that person anymore. Of course you're not. But the answer isn't the termination of the relationship. The atheists, I know, and I know very few, but the atheists I know all believe in a God or disbelieve in a God that I too would disbelieve in. They stopped changing their perception of who God was a long time ago. He's a stunted little vengeful guy that doesn't exist. But he, at one point, was their understanding of God. See, they gave up the relationship because they didn't change the form of the relationship. It is important. we got a kid who's going to college in a year. When he leaves that home, his mother will never again relate to him in the same way. Our home life will never again be the same. Unless we can adjust to that, we will suffer, he will suffer. We will change form. doesn't mean it's going to be worse. It just means it allows our relationship to go on. If she tried to mother him like, like he was when he was six years old, that would squelch the relationship. You see? Let me give you one example, and then I want the choir to come and sing. When I was growing up, I was very close to my grandparents. My mother was a single mother, trying to raise two kids, had to work long, long hours. And that took a lot of time just to put bread on the table. And so we lived in a very small town, and um, we spent a lot of time with our grandparents. And I loved my grandmother and grandfather. They practically raised me. I noticed stages that I went through with my grandmother. She was very special to me. And when I was real young, she was the nurturer. You know, she was the kissy face, huggy. You know, she was just, I, she just made me feel so special. I loved that. Gran was the provider of emotional nurturance for me. But when I hit my teenage years, my grandmother became the law keeper. She said, look, Joey, if you act like this, you're going to turn out stupid. You're going to be, you're going to injure yourself. You're going to injure other people. And so my grandmother, representative of this whole town to me, by the way, 
I lived in a small town where everybody knew everybody's business. Absolutely hated it. Remember, remember the song, Gene Pitney, Town Without Pity? Anybody remember that? I lived there. I lived in that town. See? And my grandmother symbolized this town to me because every time I went out of the house, she wanted to know where I was going, who I was going with, who were the parents. Remember that? Well, who's his mom and dad? See? Trying to locate it in the computer banks up here. What I was going to be doing, when I was going to be home. And then after I got home, checked it all out. Boy, I was so confined, so angry. I didn't want that really. I wanted that sweet little old cookie baker grandmother I used to have. I didn't want that new grandmother. See? So... I decided to rebel. I was going with this girl as a junior or senior in high school. Too old to do this. I know I was, but I did it anyhow. Just We just wanted to pull a few chains in town. So I, my father, uh, father's wedding band was around, so I got my father's wedding band, put it on this finger. She had a gold band, put it on the third finger of her left hand, and we started a rumor around Shelby, which is not difficult at all to do, <laughs> that we had secretly run away and gotten married. Oh, man, did that thing fly around town. And was it fun to see all of the people frantic calling each other up. This is the greatest thing. Till it got to my grandmother. <laughs> and then it wasn't fun anymore. She called me in and set me down, said, Joey Hunter, it's almost a sacrilege that you would use your father's ring to pray, play a practical joke on... And just... Well, boy, I came out. I said, Grant, I'm so sick of you telling me what to do and always nosing in my business. Just stay out of my business. And I stormed up the stairs to go to bed. My grandmother cried all night long. And my heart just started melting. And my grandfather, nice little guy who never said anything cross to anybody, came up and said to me, Joey, I want you to know you hurt your grandmother's feelings. Oh! I went down and I said, Grant, I'm so sorry. I just I know you're just doing what's best and okay, you know, just hold me accountable and that was stupid and so on. And then, you know, our relationship adjusted and it was good. When I went off to college, it adjusted again. Grant was no longer my keeper. Now she was my intercessor. I mean this woman, I didn't know it, but every day this little old Methodist woman was down on her knees praying for my salvation and praying that God would yank me up by the short hairs, which is exactly what he did. I got to college and started fooling around, and, I, and God just started closing his arms in tighter and tighter, and I started getting less and less pleasure out of everything I was doing, and I just knew God was putting a squeeze on me. And I didn't know why, but then it, it dawned on me. My grandma was praying for me. And she wouldn't quit, you know? She just wouldn't quit. So, God put her in my life at that time as the intercessor, and I got saved, and I got called. And, oh, man. She played a completely different role. And I remember the last time I saw her alive. I remember she was in the hospital, and she was dying of, of congestive heart failure, and her circulation was failing, and both legs were gangrenous. And, and I remember... Leaving seminary, I was in my last year of seminary. I was so proud to be a minister. I mean, it's like proud of being humble or something. I mean, it's just stupid. And I just, I'm a minister, you know. And I can remember getting to Shelby Memorial Hospital. And I can remember that long haul down 
to my grandmother's room and I knew how sick she was. And I knew this would be one of the last times I'd ever spend with her. And as I walked down that hall, I became a little boy again. It was like going in to my grandmother's kitchen when I was real little and, and she was everything to me. And I started shaking on the way down the hall. I didn't know what to say. She was dying. And my aunt, my very strong aunt, who is a charismatic Catholic, I mean, this woman is there. She caught me outside that room and she looked at me and said, Joey, she saw me shaking. She said, I want you to know that your grandmother doesn't need a little grandson right now. She needs a minister. She's scared. You're a minister. Be a minister. I began to pray every step I took in that room. God, just give me a little bit for her of what you gave her for me. One of the best visits I ever had. But the point is this. Every step of the way, the form of our relationship changed. And so therefore we could continue it on the basis that it was needed. When I was very little, God provided for me through my grandmother. And when I was older, God provided for my grandmother through me. If your relationship with Christ is failing, check out the form. Chances are you got an old one and God is saying, stop clinging to me like this. And I'm going to pray with you, and I want to warn you as we pray um, that we've asked the choir to set up during this time. They have no idea what they're praying or what we're praying about. So it's going to take an extra measure of concentration from you. Shut your eyes right now and listen to the words I say above the noise. God, thank you for the resurrection principle. Thank you that this is not simply about us living forever, but this is about something that can continue the relationships that we have on earth as well as our relationship with you. Lord, if we have depended upon you only as caregiver, help us to go into a period of holiness with you. Or if we have been in a period of submission, help us to know that there is grace for the times that we failed. Or Lord God, if we have been in that period of grace, help us to know there is yet a stage of usefulness and power that we may not have experienced. Help us to change forms so that the metamorphosis of our life may bring out the likeness of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.